Um, I guess I'm rolling into this. this it's been a while since I've been the interviewer, so I'm a little out of practice. I apologize. Um, we, how do I, I don't know. I literally don't know how to do this. <laughs> You're good. You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The John Chi Show. We are back with another recording for your listening pleasure. In some My accent name that I have no clue. KJ. <laughs> What country are we in? I am in America, and this is what all Americans sound like. That's definitely British. Do you think that's British? You're definitely British. <laughs> Thank you. If this is British, then what do you think this is, eh? Oh, that's Pikey. No, I, I recognize that one. What? <laughs> I like that. What, this sorry. is the intro. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Great. Uh, we're just going to constantly do bad. Doing okay, so <laughs> my other co-hosts are Patrick and Nathan, because they did not introduce themselves. Oh, that We're was back. the intro? That's yeah, the absolutely, intro. that's the intro. I'm Nathan. Wow. I'm um, Nathan from America. Not really, actually. Technically, you're Korea. Nathan from Korea. Technicalities. Anyways, uh, yeah, this is fun. We're back in the saddle doing the thing with the interview. As you can tell by our episode title, we eat some food. Uh, it's a really, really great episode um, to look forward to. But before we get into that, we just wanted to have a, uh, a little moment to chat because um, the holidays are nigh. Uh, how are y'all doing in your Christmas shopping? You done? You scrambling? Are you what's up? Done and shipped. That's why I was late to the recording. Wow. <laughs> so everything right. is out. So I got a f- I'm done. I got a few more things I got to pick up, but other than that, anything I needed to ship has already been shipped. So all good there. How about you? Um, well, we are planning to go to Texas for Christmas, oh, uh, nice. barring any COVID scares, um, to be with our family. Uh, so we are getting everything mailed here and then we'll wrap and then we will travel down and spend time with the family, which we're so excited for because it's the first time we'll have seen them all year. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so very That's excited great. to, to do that. Are you guys driving down or we is it are. over? Is it it's, down? It's down and a little bit over, but it's all Oklahoma. If Oklahoma would just get a freaking highway, it would Make be sure such a short trip. Some, eat some Brahms on your way down. Gotta get that we can Brahms. get that here in Springfield. Though. Oh, you can? You have a Brahms yeah. in Springfield? This is as far north as it goes. We talked about oh, this. We I did, know, but okay, I, I remember you saying you had one there. Dang it. I'm jealous yeah. now. Actually, like not so even jealous. a quarter of a mile away. I can Dang walk it. to Brahms. It's great. And it's <sighs> new. That's the weird thing. Um, I know this is like only going to apply to people who have been to Brahms, but like every Brahms, Brahms that I've been to hasn't changed since the 90s, mm-hmm. but the, like they just built one maybe two years ago. And so like to go into a modern looking Brahms, it just doesn't, it really messes with my brain. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the uh, the food selection area is a lot larger in produce and, and lots of ice cream options because usually they made that pretty big. The one that I worked at when I was in Oklahoma was very small because it was, like you said, old. So there was just like a very tiny little oh, uh, yeah, couple sure. coolers. But now the bigger, newer ones, uh, a couple that I've been to when I was uh, back home were, were just massive. And they have so many more options to buy things. So, And yep. we really are turning this intro back into a 
Brahms. Yeah, so that was the teaser for our new episode, The Brahms Boys. (laughs) Our new Uh, show, The Brahms Boys. Brahms Boys. (laughs) Go get some ice cream in a hand. I have no idea what that is. Uh, I do remember talking about it, but I don't know. All of this to talk about. um, So recently, we posted on our Facebook, how have you been celebrating and connecting to your origin culture and your adopted culture? I think there uh, is a way that we said that. Right. (laughs) Um, In terms of holidays and celebrating the holidays, uh... So we thought that we would discuss that on air. Um, so here <laughs> so we who are posted discussing. that, though? Who, you, you My wife. That? Your wife. His wife. Okay. So <laughs> did you did she talk to you about it before, it. You, uh, before she posted it? Uh, yes, she said, what do you think? And I said, sounds good. And then she's like, what about a picture? And I was like, well, maybe do this picture because it's a good one. I really so, appreciate yeah. you what walking you us think? through your creative process. Yeah, not, that was really... It's not a picture of white people, which was important to me. So that was great. a fascinating look inside. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's a slow Tuesday night at the Rocky home. <laughs> so then when she asked you, what do you think about this? What did you say, KJ? Um, I mean, I said, your post looks good. <laughs> but in terms of the actual, the actual question, uh, you know, it's been interesting. I've probably celebrated more Korean holidays uh, in the past six months than I have the rest of my life, which is to yeah. say we celebrated Chuseok and we celebrated Pepero Day, which isn't even really a holiday. It's just a thing. <laughs> well, hey. Tell <laughs> but that I mean, to the, you know. To all the loved ones in Korea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, that's been cool. Like, obviously, being away from family, um, I am hyper aware of all of my own kind of family traditions and things and uh, that I can't wait to get back to uh, and things that I've missed out on. But um, in terms of Korean, like I'm excited to be going through the calendar year with y'all uh, with the show and to experience new Korean traditions and new Korean holidays uh, to dig into that because that was not a thing that we celebrated in the Rocky home growing up. Um, so I think uh, sometimes we would get Korean food on my birthday, if, you know, if I wanted to. Uh, I would go to Korean karaoke with my friends, but those aren't like holiday traditions. It was just like a, a thing that we did because I was friends with a bunch of theater and or choir nerds. Uh, so we like to sing in public a lot. So that's what we did. Yeah. Well, it's a way to connect with the culture. You said it was Korean karaoke, didn't you? Isn't that what you said? Yeah. I mean, mostly it's just like you could go into a private room and just hang out with your friends. You didn't have to like... Right. Go into a like a regular American karaoke bar. You know? right. Right, so right. Also, it was in high school, so that makes sense. I remember yeah. I did a lot of karaoke in high school. That's a lie. <laughs> I didn't do any of it. <laughs> I, was say, I, I would karaoke. love to see you crush the karaoke. What? Okay. Let if you go. had to do karaoke, what would you let John, it go? No, I wouldn't. I don't. I've never no. seen that movie or even heard the actual <laughs> song. Oh I just know gosh. I've heard it just you in just the back of my I've heard it fifty million times. I don't know. It's not what even my, the best song. I don't even know what my karaoke song would be. Yeah, I'm well, you uh, it. as much as I've done like music and stuff. I'm a little bit sh- gun shy when it comes to like karaoke, and mm. I can sing a lot better when I'm by myself and when. I know the song, the shower. but I make up the words to, I can do melodies and yeah. make up my own uh-huh. song even better uh, than I can rap. Honestly, I can, uh, that's what I like to do. It's so. cause it's slower freestyle singing like that. Yeah, that's true. Could be an interesting John Chi next year. If we all do get together with a little karaoke afterwards, that would be great <laughs> yeah. if we could just get together. Like, and we yeah, didn't even do anything. You guys get prepared for the country. Um, <laughs> I agree with you, KJ. I've I've also haven't celebrated as many Korean holidays, uh, uh, you know, ever. 
Um, <laughs> this show has definitely, ha- you know, really opened my eyes to more of them, and I'm excited to see. I mean, I knew that there were some traditional ones. And, um, I asked my family recently about Christmas and my Korean family and my biological family does celebrate Christmas over there. It's fairly big, but because of COVID they are keeping to themselves and, uh, staying safe. So, um, but yeah, they, I know there's a big, uh, you know, Korean Christian population out there as well. So I, Mm. I kind of assumed that there was some, some Merry Christmases going on, but, uh, yeah. You guys had like the Dole John cheese for your kids, right? So that's one sure. way. That's not necessarily that's like holiday, a holiday but yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, good point. It's a good way to connect. Festivity, yeah. The, yeah. And that I, the only reason I knew about that because uh, because I'm a photographer and because I photographed those events. Right. And when I saw that happen, I was like, oh, this sounds fun, and and uh, I always enjoyed that. So that's why I incorporated it. But uh, other things that we didn't do, for example, like the hundred day celebration. Mm. Um, um, that's something that we've never really done. We took a photo, I think, for my first. Is that son, when your kid but, turns a hundred days old? Yeah, hundred days okay. old was a big milestone, and uh, we we only took a photo of of him, and as we didn't do it for my other two kids, but uh, um, <laughs> but they all survived hundred days. Sorry. So, you know, <laughs> so we're all good. Right on. Um, I don't. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you guys. I mean, outside of like Chuseok, um, which I feel like I really didn't even participate in, outside of like what we like the show that we did, you know, I just didn't really, it was so new and Mm -hmm. like, I just, I don't know. And I think this is something I've talked to you guys about just being ever since starting the show, having more moved in like an adoptee direction for adoptee culture versus like Korean culture. And I'm kind of mad at my, I've been kind of mad at myself for doing that, you know, because I wanted to get more in touch with my Korean side. And I mean, that's one of the best things about doing the show is to hear those connections. So, unfortunately, I haven't connected with Korean cultures and traditions very much. And But the even worse part is, like, I haven't really done, like, a lot of American, like, traditions or whatever. Like, connecting with the culture is, as much as it's getting together with your family, but that's about it. Like, we don't even do that anymore because after grandparents passing away and things like that, you know, we don't connect, like, a family as much like that anymore. And, like, my sister lives in a different state, you know, so like the biggest tradition is going to Salt Lake City. You're getting yeah. married soon, though. It's that's it's true. Time to start new traditions. We have talked about it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the traditions is going to be making pies and throwing them at each other. So. Wow! <laughs> you know, one of the weirdest things around holidays that I just did not expect was how weird it was uh, for Sarah and I to go shopping for a Christmas tree. Mm. Um, because yeah. like that for me, so like I have really specific memories of, um, growing up, we had a, a fake tree, so we would, um, build the tree and, uh, my dad would blast Mannheim steamroller on our like <laughs> six disc stereo system or whatever. Uh, cause you know, six discs, I was like, six a huge, disc, huge baby. Yeah. yeah. So he, we had like three of them were Mannheim <laughs> steamroller and then a couple of them were whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so I was just like, when we went to go shop for our tree, I was like, oh my gosh, this really, like, this is it. This is us starting you are, our, you are our lives together. You know, like, for me, like, I love Christmas. And so that was just like a whole, that was like the moment when I felt like, and I mean, also we got married in the fall. So um, that was like one of the big things. I was like, oh, this is us doing holidays together as a, a new family. Um, so that was really cool. So now uh, I listen to Mannheim Steamroller and handles messiah so i'm like singing along to instrumental music and then just uh yelling 
choral anthems, basically. <laughs> While you're putting the tree up, just yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah, decoration is, I was going to say, another yeah. thing that I've started to do with my family. We don't do it like my parents do, which is the day after Thanksgiving. It's like a, a mini holiday, and that, that day they just break out the boxes and the tree mm. and everything, and they make it a big uh, event. So um, it's always, Hanging of always the greens, the as the one yeah. might say. Um, and we tried to do it. We did it actually that weekend after Thanksgiving, so we still got a lot of stuff up. Um, but the one thing that I started with my kids that uh, – I think I started this last year – uh, was the advent calendar mm. and oh yeah uh, i wanted i wanted my kids to have a um, well my youngest didn't know last year what it was but this year we we have one for both of them and it's and it's handmade i guess we didn't get one of those ones that's like all packaged and <laughs> right. chocolates inside because we were like we're not gonna give our kids chocolates every day so so we just got the <laughs> we just made essentially a mini calendar with countdown to the 25th and they nice. have to glue up a little santa on the numbers and so that it counts down to 25 so that's fun um yeah and it's fun because they they know they realize oh we forgot to put one on the the board for you know for counting down 11 days and they count how many days but left. but is it so. a korean santa uh no but funny you mentioned that we do have some packaging and i didn't even realize this i bought some boxes uh it's like garment boxes to to wrap presents and stuff in and it is a minority santa is that interesting (laughs) it's it's a it's a black santa oh okay (laughs) so but i couldn't it's like it's a mixed race santa or is it just a black santa (laughs) it's a black santa but i didn't realize that that was was Right on the thing. I mean, I didn't even think about it, but then I noticed because he's got a big white beard, and I was like, "Oh wow!" I was like, "Well, that's really cool that they're they're creating you know boxes and packaging like that." So about damn time. Yeah. Right on. Um, well, um, that's. I feel like that's a great segue because our guest today for the show is Dr. Jr. Kim. Uh, we just call her Jr. because we're best friends now. Um, <laughs> It was like After. really informal kind of. That was great. I loved it. It wasn't, yeah, it was. but it was. I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, and she is. She does research on um, social work uh, for specifically as it relates to adoption and foster care and international adoption, and like uh, has like done a lot of thinking around uh, you know adopted Koreans becoming Korean parents themselves and kind of all that stuff. So uh, we get into all of that and more. Um, talk about her blog, Harlow's Monkey. Uh, and her more academic blog jronkim.com um and then we eat some snackage you know how the show goes so here <laughs> it is spoil so, the whole uh, thing for him so sit on look, down just, this is what you're about to experience you know i told you what i'm going to tell you i'm about to tell you and then at the end we won't recap any of it because it's already been recorded so here we go into the interview with jr <laughs> right now roll clip We are here with the interview. Uh, we have our very special guest, J.R. Kim, on with us to talk about uh, her life and her study and everything in between. Uh, so, J.R., welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I was thrilled when I found out that you were going to be coming on because um, you were the first person when you were doing a thing with Jerry, uh, you were the first person to put in my mind the term transracial adoptee or transnational adoptee. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was just a couple months ago. And that um, I feel like that unlocked a whole new paradigm for me. So thank you uh, for giving me that extra vocabulary. Um, but before we get too deep into all of that, uh, let's start with the very 
short uh, and confusing question that we ask all of our adoptee <laughs> guests. Uh, what is your adoption story? Okay, so I was uh, like lots of adoptees. I was. I don't really know when my birth date is, but I was born sometime we think in '68 um, in Korea in Daegu area, which is you know kind of in the middle of the country. Oh yeah, that's where I'm from. All right, Woo. yeah, yeah. I mean, I assume I don't know. Not... <laughs> yeah, right. We haven't seen a few from there. That's what we've established yeah. on the show is canon, so you are from there. It's like, it's like <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, from yeah. Seoul or you're from Daegu. It seems like those are the two popular. No, Busan, Busan, yeah. yeah. Busan's yeah. too. Well, so that I mean that that's what's so interesting is all my paperwork, my adoption paperwork says that I'm from Seoul. And it wasn't until I did my birth family search that I learned that I wasn't from Seoul. So like, I think like a lot of adoptees, you know a little bit. And then the more you kind of dig into it, the more you find out, oh, that's not true. Um, and so I didn't realize that I'd actually been in two different orphanages. I thought I'd only been in one. Um, so I was found um, February 1970. So do the math. I was about 14 months old, if the birth date is correct. Um, the story is that I came with a note that had my name and birthday. I think for a lot of us, you know, who knows if that's true or not. Um, but I was found uh, outside of Daegu City Hall. And they sent me to a local orphanage called White Lily. And I was there for a little while. And then I think once they decided I was adoptable, then I got sent to Seoul, actually to Ilsan, which is outside of Seoul. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the Holt um, Korea orphanages. And I was there mm -hmm. for, I don't even know how long, like another year or so. And then I was adopted to a family in Minnesota. And I arrived in 1971. And I had my mom, my adoptive mom was pregnant with my sister at the time. So just about the time that I turned three years old, my sister was born. So um, we're about three years apart. And then I have another brother who is um, my parents' birth child. Uh, and he's another year younger. So they had my siblings really close together. Hmm. And so it's the three of us. So I'm the only adoptee in the family. And I'm also the oldest one in the family. Although if you are interested in birth order stuff at all. <laughs> I don't know if you are, but my sister is actually the first born in that family. Um, so it gets weird. Like hmm. if you think about birth order stuff. Um, so my parents had three children in the home in just about two years time, less than two years yeah. time in about 18 months time, they had three children. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, so I feel sorry for them. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, oh. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I yep. sympathize. <laughs> so, the yeah. yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, um, although it might have well has, have been, you know, out in nowhere because like lots of adoptees, they were very few or no other adoptees around. I Once I got into high school, I knew of a couple others. Um, but it was really a largely white community. We weren't that far from the city, but we didn't go to the city very often. So we, we didn't go to Minneapolis hardly ever. We just were kind of in our little bubble. Mm -hmm. So once I left and went to college, that was really the first time I started thinking about what it meant to be Asian. I wasn't even thinking about being Korean or really adoption stuff. Um, it was just when I went to college and then 
my first interaction were with um, international Asian students, actually, mm -hmm. because they saw me and they were like, hey, you know, hi. <laughs> and I was You're like, one of us. Right. right. And, and then I'm like, like no. who, are, who are you? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that's, um, that's kind of my adoption story. Um, my story to like how I ended up doing all this work around adoption is, is a very long story and kind of very different, but, and I'm happy to share that if you're interested, but if you have other questions. Yeah, I would love to, to hear that. I'm curious, um, just, I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. Um, and maybe this kind of gets into, or maybe is the precursor to your work now, but, um, you said that you didn't start kind of self-racializing or thinking about yourself as Asian American until college. Um, what was the was the main motivator for that just being around more uh people of color or specifically more asian slash asian americans or um you know what was the impetus for that it's that's a really great question because i never identified as white i, I mean i growing up in my family it was i would think maybe maybe because i was the oldest it was very clear i was asian <laughs> and my grandparents used to they love to tell the story that when I was little and I'd be out with the family, if I would ever see the rare occasion, I would see an Asian person, I would point to them and say, oh, they look like me. Mm. And so clearly I was, um, I was picking up on the differences and knew I was different. And, and of course, uh, in my family, uh, adoption, it's not that we talked about it a lot, but it was never secret. It was never hidden. It wasn't, anything that my parents didn't, they didn't feel weird about talking about the fact that I was adopted. So like, it was just normal. But I think because the white community was just everywhere and we went to white schools and white churches and everything was just, you know, I just didn't have anybody to look at to say, oh, I can identify as being Asian because there's other Asians around me. So yeah, I think in part, even though I went to a really small college and there weren't that many people, uh, it was more Asians than I'd ever been with in my life before then. And that, which isn't saying much. I mean, I, I mean it's like, like zero to 10. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. There's a rule of five Asians. And you're like, Oh, I've never been in a room with this many Asians before in my life. So that's kind of how it was. And I only stayed at that one college for a year and a half. And then I transferred to the university of Minnesota. And then that's where it was really like, there's so many Asians there at the time. And um, in my particular major, um, I originally started out in um, fashion design, and there were a number of other Asians in my first, in, in that major. I mean, I never finished. So that's part of my whole story is um, I spent many years going to different colleges and trying out different things, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually dropped out of school um, right after I had my daughter thinking I would go back and I, that hiatus lasted like 12 years. So I didn't mm -hmm. actually go back to school and finish my undergraduate degree until I was 30, I was 33 when I started and I was 35 or 36 when I finished. Um, and so I, yeah, I just spent a lot of time kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And, <laughs> and, uh, I got into adoption because I was volunteering at the time and I was volunteering with my adoption agency. They had other programs there. And one of them was um, mentoring uh, young women who were at risk of being involved in child protection. And um, 
I got interested in it because I was, I mean, really, I think I was trying to figure out, um, like, what causes families to be at risk for losing a child to the system, mm. you know, and that absolutely was driven by my own experience. But um, yeah, so I, I saw this notice that they were looking for mentors and I was at the point where I had two young kids and I thought, oh, this is something I can do. I know something about parenting. Um, and that was really a great experience. And the director of volunteer services at the time said, um, we have this other program and it's for international adoptees. And we've got a couple of teenagers who are kind of struggling a little bit. Would you be interested in moving over and being a mentor in that program instead? And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And that's kind of how I got started. I was um, in my late 20s at the time. And then the director, after a few years, said, you know, have you ever thought about being a social worker? And I laugh now because I didn't even know what social work was. Right. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, I know what psychology is, but I don't know what social work is. Um, and it all coincided with other things that were happening at the same time. So um, I was doing this volunteering with these uh, teenage international adoptees. I had reconnected with a friend that I had met a couple of summers at uh, when I was a kid at um, a Bible camp. So I used to go to Bible camp every summer. And there was another Korean adoptee that I met there and we became really good friends. We used to run around the camp and tell everybody we were twins and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then her, um, her family stopped coming to camp and we lost touch and I ended up connecting with her. Um, I know this is such a long story, but I don't know if any of you are familiar with, um, in Minnesota, there's a newspaper called Korean Quarterly. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. Yeah. Patrick, you oh, know about know them? That, that was like a, a Minnesota oh, yeah. publication. I've seen it. They started things, in yeah. Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. And I was just, so here I am like 29. I've got these kids. Um, I'm trying to think like, how can I teach them anything about being Korean if I don't even know anything about being Korean? And so I was taking like my first little mini baby steps into trying to cook Korean food because isn't that the way many of us kind of start? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'd gone to this grocery store, this Asian grocery store, and I was super scared, you know, like, what if they talk to me and I can't talk to them back? And um, they had this stack of Korean quarterlies and I took one and opened it up and I realized that the, the editors and the publishers were adoptive parents and they had Korean kids. And so most of the stuff that they had in there was... I mean, there's a ton of stuff around adoption. And I op I was reading through and there was this essay by this uh, Korean adoptee who had started a group for other adoptees. And it just so happened that that was my friend that I'd had back in when I was like in first, oh, wow. second grade. Wow, and yeah. um, we reconnected. And then that really got me. That was like a big catalyst because then in the next year I was going to Korea and then I was deciding to go back to school and become a social worker. And um yeah, that was how crazy it was a lot. That, that, was that a big, article yeah. was your friend. Yeah. How insane is that? Yeah, <laughs> it really was. I, the only reason why I knew about it is because she had a couple of these details in there that I was like, hmm, <laughs> I, know well, I, kid, I don't know anybody else who could be an adoptee that had these things happen. So, yeah, that was really cool. That's amazing. I had a question along there and it went away. So uh, I will come back to that as soon as I think about it. I think there was something about, um, oh, okay. So um, 
this I mean may not have been the actual question, but along the way, as you were so thinking of yourself as Asian American, and then you had your kids, which sounds like along with other things, that was when you started thinking about yourself as Korean American. Um, and then you mentioned kind of before we started recording that, you know, you just went to the 2019 ICA conference and things like that. So what was the moment when you started thinking of yourself um, as an adoptee or when that identity maybe uh, took more prevalence in how you understand yourself? Yeah, that's such a good question. Really, I think it was when I reconnected with my friend and she had started this uh, peer support group for other adoptees who were, and she was living in kind of like mid, mid Minnesota, which isn't close to the, the cities, right? So she was connecting with other adoptees who were living kind of, that were really separated from any kind mm-hmm. of a Korean community. And um, I think that's really when it started to hit me, like, oh yeah, I re- I've never had any other friends who are Korean adoptees. So I was kind of really thinking about it in in that way. Um, and as she introduced me to other Korean adoptees, you realize like you have this connection. Like um, there's something that you start to tell your story and everybody's head starts nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we get it. We all we get, get it, it yeah, exactly. right? We know what that experience has been like. And um, so that's, that's really kind of what happened. And then... Um, I don't know if you've heard about these gatherings that happened. Mm-hmm. And so the ICA is kind of the larger offshoot of it. Um, the very first um, ICA conference wasn't ICA. It was called the, the Gathering of Korean Adoptees. And it was in Washington, D.C. in 1999. And I missed going to it by just a few months because mm-hmm. I would reconnected with my friend before it and she was going. So she came back from that gathering, like super excited about all these adoptees, you know, 400 and some adoptees in one place. Honestly, that was the first time I realized that there were adoptees in Europe and in Australia, like, (laughs) because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And she came back and she's like, oh, there are adoptees from like Sweden and Norway. And like, that just blew my mind. And um, she was then said, I'm going to go on this trip to do a birth family search and go to Korea. Do you want to come with me? And that was going to be the next year. And so I did. Um, and we had gotten together with all the members of this trip in January of 2000. And the next thing I know, it's like 35 adoptees from around the country because they heard we were getting together and they had all met at the gathering. <laughs> and then, that's amazing. Right? And so that's just how community happens. Like, we're just going to buy this plane then? Right. We were at a hotel yeah. and we were like, hey, so there was a big dinner. And then, and then it happened like every year after that, somebody, adoptees in different groups uh, were forming and saying, hey, we'll host the a gathering once you come out to New York or, you know, San Francisco or whatever. And so it, it, it's kind of grew from there. And then I was listening to your podcast with Glenn Murray mm-hmm. and he was talking about the con conference. And so I went to my first con conference in 2001 and went to a couple of those for a while and um, took a break. But then I've gone to several of the last ones, um, like the last four or five years, I've gone to, to the con conferences again, too. And then I've been to three of the ICA conferences in Korea as well. So I just want to jump in real quick. Um, It's really amazing to hear you talk about all these things because I've just been myself finishing up Adopted Territory and Invisible Asians, which really dives into, you know, the history of transnational adoption and how Korean adoptees started to form. And to hear you talk about 
just missing that first gathering and then being able to go to these subsequent gatherings. I'm wondering, I don't know. I'm just, I'm actually, I have like kind of chills. It's really kind of hard for me to formulate just to hear you speak these words that I've just read on the paper. Um, my question, I guess, is what was it like to be in those moments of the first formations of like uh, AK Connection and AKA in San Francisco and those and like uh, the Boston Korean adoptees, those groups? What was it like just having yourself just started to really dive into the adoption side of this Korean diaspora that we find ourselves in, if it even is that, if we even are part of that, what was that like? I'm just like, I don't know. Sorry. I'm just like, so wrapped up in it. I'm like, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Cause I'm just like, Oh, it's crazy. But yeah, I just want to know kind of what that was like from your perspective. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I'll say is absolutely. We're part of the Korean diaspora. <laughs> And um, and I think that we've had as a group of people, we've had to fight to be considered that. Um, So when I was first starting to think about being Asian American, I mean, not even Korean American and not an adoptee, but just Asian American. um, I was reading all these books, uh, Strangers from a Distant Shore, uh, Asian American Dreams, Honzia, like all these really important scholars in Asian American history. And I used to say that we were only a footnote in the history books because literally there would be like a footnote that said also included are you know military brides and adoptees Mm -hmm. so we were we were never ever really the focus of that diaspora but we absolutely are and um i think you know at the time we didn't know that we were starting this important chapter in korean adoptee history um, when all these groups were forming. I mean, I remember being on the plane coming home from my first trip to Korea with some friends saying, oh, we should start another Korean adoptee group in Minnesota. And like within minutes, AK Connection had started. I wasn't part of it, but you know, I wasn't the only one. Clearly there was a need and people were responding to that need. And I think because we were getting to a certain age, that first gathering, um, you know, adoptees that had been here since the 50s and the 60s, we're now old enough to start saying, this is what we want, this is what we need. We have to, we don't have a community outside of our parents. So we are gonna form our own. And I think that's what happens to a lot of communities. You know, at a certain point, you take the reins yourself and you say, this is what we need and this is what we want. That is amazing. I just think that because what I've been reading in these books and why they've stuck with me so, or struck such a, and or been so transformational for me is because I feel like they really impress upon the reader or the audience or myself how important these first adoptees really were and to and informing not only the community, but being able to allow us now, this current generation, to do what we're doing right now. I think that this is such a short history. 53, if you think about it, I mean, maybe a little bit before that, but you know, right, right in that first official year of that transnational adoption, it's not long, it's not even been 70 years. And there's so much that has happened in that time. And so many things that have not only had to been formed, but battles that have had to been fought and won. Um, And I just, I really just want to thank you for for giving us the opportunity to just speak with you and to hear about some of these experiences. Um, but just for the work that you've done in that time to allow us to be able to do something like this. 
So I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that just because I'm in complete really funny reference right now. So I, <laughs> I feel like we usually get to this point, like by the end of the interview, but Patrick like is starting. Like, no further questions. I uh, just uh, thank you for being here yeah, and validating just, our existence. Yeah, it's just, it's, it means a lot. To, it just means a lot to me right now. So yeah, that's why I'm saying that. I, I appreciate that so much. Um, just can I just say though that um, I feel like I'm not really the generation that should be given credit. Well, like there are yeah. adoptees who are, who are here 20 years before I came here, who I think really paved the way. Mm. Um, they're often not acknowledged right. because the work that they did was so individual and they did work in their own communities um, before we had the opportunity to really gather, Right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, so I appreciate that. And I feel the same way to all of the other adoptees who, who set the groundwork so I could do my work really. So my my question, uh, going back to what you said about uh, finding a, a you know your friend who convinced you good to go to Korea to look for your family, and then it just built from there, went from two to four, yeah, I don't know, thirty five or something <laughs> right. like that, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something that kind of baffles me in a way because I think a lot of people go through that that search on their own, individual by themselves, uh, never have an ability to go with a group to maybe in a way that's like a uh, biological family, you know, support group going there and, and doing it all at the same time. I, I can only imagine what that's like. Cause I, I did it on my own, just filling out paperwork in my basement and then mm -hmm. sending it in and hoping for the best. Uh, have you talked to other people about those, those groups and about, um, I mean, if they continued to, to happen and, uh, uh, I mean, what do you know about, I, I guess as, as a comparison for that, if someone is out there wanting to do it where they don't feel you know, comfortable doing it on their own and they would want to do it with a group. Yeah. So I would say that there's pros and cons either way to doing it. Um, there were eight of us that went on this trip and um, let's see, I think one, two of them, two of the eight of us found their family within like the first two days we were there. Another person found, had a family claim them, but it turned out that it wasn't a match. And no, I'm take that back. Three people found their family. It was, it, I mean, it was just like whirlwind, like within days of getting there. Um, so yes, there's support because we're all in the same boat and we're all doing the same thing. There's also the potential for there to be some hurt feelings if some people find their families and other people don't. And I hear the same thing happens when you've got siblings who are adopted and they've searched and one finds a family and the other doesn't. So I think it, it can be just be like anything else around adoption. It's really complicated and mm -hmm. it depends. Yeah, <laughs> My favorite answer, both and. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's both and. I, I mean, I would um, I would say if you're going to, and, and, and I think the other thing is everybody has a different idea about what kind of support they need. So um, maybe you need uh, a partner or spouse, a good friend, parents to go on that journey with you. Maybe you don't want that. Um, maybe you want somebody who's Korean adoptee or Korean, but not adopted. You know, like, I, I think everybody has their own needs. So kind of identifying like what kind of support you think might be the best. Like, um, for some people, because it's such an emotional journey, having somebody else who's never been to Korea before or doesn't haven't gone through that experience with you, um, it's tough because you don't want to be taking care of somebody else at the same time as you're trying to figure out what you need. 
So like um, now that I've been to Korea and I've kind of done my search and I've been I've been searching since 2000. I haven't found my family. I don't think I ever will at this point, although I did have a family come forward and then I did a DNA test and it wasn't a match. And I, I, that wasn't me in that previous story that that happened to somebody else. So I know it's it's I'm not the only one. We're not yeah. the only ones for that to happen. And this was before 23andMe was around. So mm -hmm. when we were talking about DNA test matching, it was the old school kind. It was super expensive. Um, but, you know, some adoptees go on the TV shows. I was on a TV show. Some put out ads in the newspaper. There's lots of different ways to do your search. And so I think it kind of depends on how much attention you like. You know, like some people don't want to be on a national TV yeah. uh, in Korea, which I totally get because I didn't know. <laughs> I was super naive. And I would travel around the country after being on the show and, you know, these little Korean Ajumas would come up to me and, did you find your family? I'm praying for you. And I'm like, how do you recognize me? <laughs> but they did. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I it's a good question. And I think everybody everybody's going to have different needs. So mm -hmm. maybe think about um, who supports you the best in your in your life and think about whether or not maybe it's maybe it's just one of your best friends. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's not uh, another mm -hmm. adoptee. Um, it, it just I think it depends for yeah. everyone. Very good. Good answer. I, I definitely things to think about as far as uh, who's involved and what, like you said, the support group that you need. Uh, my my support group was my wife at the time. Yeah. Um, but I do remember when I found my family, I didn't even actually consider the fact that my sister might feel um, uh you know, yeah. jealous or, or, um, you know, sad by the fact that I was searching and then I did actually find, you know, my, my biological family. And when I did find them, my sister was actually ecstatic because she felt because she was, you know, my sister, she felt like she also mm. now had found some of her family and she considered them part of her family too, which I thought was really nice and, and, uh, was really happy that she got to meet, uh, at least my brother when he came to, to town. And, uh, so, in a way, she kind of met her. I guess, a, what would you call that? A brother-in-law? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Biological brother. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's like an adopted because we're not biological, but yet he and I are. So it's, it, but it made her feel good. So I, I love that because I think as adoptees, we all understand kind of the expansiveness of what family means and what family mm -hmm. can be. Right. So yeah. does, there doesn't have to be a biological tie, but for you your sister to feel connected to your biological family. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. I, th I thought it was really neat too. So I was happy that it turned out that way. All right. So um, let's take a slight turn and talk about what you're doing now uh, as a, uh, not even like in, in the social work field, I guess. Uh, Cause you're, as I understand it, predominantly doing research, right? Um, I do research and I teach. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, in uh, do you specialize in intercountry adoption? Is it like kind of all like just kind of tell us, give us the the high level view of what you do, and um, and we'll go from. So I would say my research. Um, I have two kind of uh, focuses in my research. One is around um, the experience of individuals who have been uh, separated from their families of origin. And so I, that includes foster care and adoption. And so in addition to doing research on inter-country adoptees, I also do research on foster care. I'm working with an organization right now doing a 
kind of a large study looking at um, foster parent re recruitment and retention in the United States. And um, then I have a number of smaller projects going on around adoption and they are um, so, like the most current study I just finished overlaps with my other research area, which is around disabilities. And so we did a study of um, adoptive parents who have kids that have disabilities. And so kind of one of the things that I tend to do is I toggle back and forth between getting experiences of adoptive parents or foster parents, and then also the experiences of the adoptees or the foster person themselves. And I want to do a study really looking at um, adoptees that have disabilities. And I have a, I did a study on intercountry adoptees who experienced an adoption displacement, meaning that their adoptive parents didn't continue to raise them. They placed them in out-of-home care of one kind or another after their adoption. And a lot of those adoptees had disabilities. And so that's um, something else I really want to kind of explore and see what that connection might be, if there is anything, anything there. Um, and then I've been doing a number of other studies looking at like social work students with disabilities and how do they experience their education. So there's kind of like these overlap around um, adoption and disabilities. And then kind of professional stuff too, like looking at how social workers are trained to practice in adoption because most, here's a little secret, most social workers have zero education experience on adoption. So they go out to their child welfare agencies or their adoption agencies, and then they're suddenly facilitating adoptions, but they don't know anything about it. They haven't learned anything in, in their training or their therapists, and they don't have any background on how to do therapy with people who are connected to adoption. So I also look at um, that preparation and training too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm really I was taken by uh, this line on your um, I guess your more academic website, um, and I wanted to see. Oh, you write. I question whether my chosen profession is more about social control than social justice. Is that can you say more about that? Is it just like, I guess reading it, I don't know uh, if you mean it to be um, your your own sense or if you're speaking about kind of the like, industry and being like, uh, maybe this is a tool of the oppressor or something. Uh, yes, that's a good question. I love that question. Um, yeah, so, so the origins of social work are, um, it's another both and, and it's, which fits in with adoption too. It is both. A mechanism of social control and it's a mechanism of social justice and so social work as a as its own profession is about marginalized communities and how to make opportunities and resources more available for people who are who have been marginalized by society but a lot of our institutions our social work institutions um, are trying to fit kind of the way people should behave and the way they should be in this world in in a narrow parameter Right. So um, we are doing both. And I think adoption is another one of those aspects of social work that are both kind of social control, you know, because adoption in the United States went through lots of uh, historical time periods where it was around controlling uh, unmarried women's reproduction. Right. So if you look at a lot of um, adoption advocates, they will say this is an anti-abortion um, measure too, right? Like we don't want women to have abortions. We'd rather have them place their children for adoption. So there's that whole aspect of it. 
Then there's the whole aspect of the stigma that if you're a single mom and you don't have a lot of resources, you know, what can you provide for that child? So, I mean, if you think about it, there's just lots of different ways to look at what seems like on the on the face value of it is adoption is just a win-win-win situation for everybody, for a child, for adoptive parents, for uh, a birth family. But it's it's way more complicated than that. And if our society was really just and there were resources, then women and families might be able to stay together and have what they need so they don't have to place a child for adoption, right? So I, I kind of say like a lot of my work is really around trying to work myself out of a job. Like I don't want to have to research adoption anymore because families can be preserved and we don't need to have adoption. At the same time, that's not really always a reality. And so how are we going to do the best that we can when those situations are there and we have to um, figure out who's going to take care of a child, right? It's so it's it's super complicated that way. Um, and And I think it's important to hold both of those ideas in at the same time. And we should be able to critique it. So in some ways, I, I would consider myself a critical social worker because I want to make sure that the institutions that are developed to provide services in, in social work um, are doing it justice forward um, and, and not as a means to just like control how people should behave. OK, so I have something written down um, in this profession of teaching social workers. I think that's really, really interesting. Um I started a nonprofit that provide or we work with older foster youth in Chicago, uh, provide them cell phones and un, uh, unlimited data so they can be in touch with their services and you know bridge that divide of, between access and souls. Um, and you know, I hear a lot of it's called all time to local. Oh yeah, well I'm not gonna plug my own thing right now. <laughs> um, I uh, I'm plugging it for I, you. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, I just find it so interesting about you know, how, as you get older in the system, how you really start to lose connection with the social workers that you work with, how you now see a huge revolving door of social workers to that come in and help you. And this may be less to do with adoption, but um, I know that reunification is really the primary goal that we hope for. And that doesn't necessarily happen all the time. And I was wondering yeah. what what you would say or what you try and teach your the social workers that come through your class about working with older youth um, in terms of what to expect and how to help facilitate that aging out process if emancipation is the only answer. And I've realized that this question isn't necessarily have to do with anything other than my own specific thing. But um, <laughs> I mean, I'm interested. Yeah, so. I just wondered if you had any light to shed just in, in that direction. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about permanency and child welfare, you know, the permanency is kind of one of their jargon words. And it basically means to like get them out of the foster care system or the child welfare system. Right. And so the three kind of areas of permanency that they're hoping for would be reunification. And even though they say, you know, the the goal is supposed to be reunification first. I would say oftentimes that's the one that's the least supported right. and the least um, advocated mm -hmm. for is reunification. Adoption, which should be the last option, is usually the first one or the one that they push the hardest for and the one in which a lot of federal funding kind of supports. And then there's guardianship. And so, okay, so now here's my soapbox about kind of, um, 
those three different types of permanency. Um, one of them, you tend to lose all of your identity, and that's adoption. The other two are the ones that actually can support and have more of a continuity of your identity, which I think for young people is super important. Mm -hmm. Adoption also has a tendency to encourage severing all the connections that you had before, whereas guardianship and reunification do not. So I think the one thing that um, I would really emphasize for social work students who are working in child welfare is that when we're thinking about this concept of permanency, we can't just be thinking about placement and we can't just be thinking about who's caring for you. We have to be thinking about relationships. So it's not where your body lies and it's not the legal aspect of it. It's really around your relationships. And so we should be helping all young people have as many healthy and really robust relationships that are continuous. Because, you know, I mean, I have two young adult children. They're 22 and 26. And we're still supporting them. I mean, they're adults, but we're still supporting them in so many different ways. And how can you expect any kid who's been in the foster care system for any amount of time, I don't care if it's two months or if it's 10 years, to be able to go off on their own and live as an adult independently and say, well, we want you to do what we're not willing to do for our, the kids that we have, which is to continue to support them as they make their way into adulthood. So it's really around what kind of relationships are you helping support for that young person so that they have they have resources as they get older and not just financial resources, but just like, you know, who are they going to call if they if their car breaks down or they get stranded someplace or, you know what I mean? It's like all those things that you do if you have a whole network. So it's really around like social capital and and being able to have a strong support network for for them. Uh, I need to have a side conversation with you about some things with our nonprofit uh, to pick your brain on. So, uh, yeah, this can be cut out, but seriously, I uh, definitely want to have that conversation. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I did work in child welfare for a couple of years, and I was working as an adoption social worker for kids who are in foster care. The majority of the youth I worked with were between 12 and 17, and the goal was to find them adoptive parents. And it was so interesting how I would read home studies, you know, and I will just say like they were all black Native American or multiracial and like 70 percent, 80 percent of the home studies I would get for them were white families who lived out in the country, you know, and they wanted to homeschool their kids, you know, like so I just kept thinking about like how is this family who don't who they don't have any other kids in their home um, they have the best of intentions, but they want to adopt a black 16-year-old and homeschool them out in, you know, 60 miles away from the nearest urban area. Um, it just really didn't feel like it was about what the kid needed, right. you know, mm -hmm. keeping them connected to their friends and their school and their communities. It was about, I want a parent. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just we need to be doing a much better job thinking about what youth need and what they say they want and not just about what parents parents want prospective parents want so i think this is um adjacent to kind of a, a greater conversation that patrick and nathan and i have been having um you know patrick is uh the the newest or i guess the youngest in his ownership of his adoptee and, and korean and asian american identities uh and also probably is the most um 
historical historically knowledgeable just because of time and like he's had he's just like read all of the books and i'm like they're <laughs> on my list books. Many um, more nathan books is like i have kids so anyways uh so, <laughs> so this is weird kind of um paradigm for the three of us to have because i don't know why i said paradigm like well, that's only twice whatever uh <laughs> it feels like a lot because it's not a, a phrase that i use often um but so th- there's this weird uh, dynamic between the three of us because like Nathan um, being the oldest and maybe uh, the most comfortable with those identities and then Patrick being the youngest uh, with that identity, but having the most kind of historical knowledge. So we've had some conversations and, and just seen some things uh, on the internet we've uh, seen around, <laughs> yeah, uh, around adoption and kind of uh, people's general approach to or sentiment towards adoption. Um, and if this is too personal for you, then you can just say so and we'll cut it all out. But uh, w- given your research and your own personal experience with adoption, how do you feel about it? Are you uh, generally like pro-adoption? Are you generally anti-adoption? Are you just going to say both and? Yeah, totally she's going to say She's going to say both. She's going to say both. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I mean, that's probably my thing. Yeah, I used I know, to, right? I used to say, um, <laughs> I might cut this. I don't know. Uh, I used to say that the adoption was like the best thing to come out of white supremacy just because like, that's how I understood it. And like, <laughs> but I live in like the whitest town I've ever lived in. And so people were like very offended about that. And I'm like, well, that's from how, from how I'm seeing it, like it's, pretty much always white parents like i have yet to personally experience any non-white uh, adoptive parent story um and so yeah so i'm just like that must be it like that just is the thing you know so um but i think i generally land at pro adoption i don't know it's it's doing the show has come has led to some interesting conversations with my co-hosts and with my wife so uh just curious where where you were at with it yeah um i get that question a lot actually. (laughs) Um, And I think part of it is also because I've worked um, in a number of different uh, agencies doing Mm. the job, right? So I worked as a foster care adoption worker for an agency. Um, I worked in post-adoption support. I worked to develop um, at a child welfare and research center training um, for people who are going to be working either clinically or in child welfare practice around adoption. And um, so to how to put this, I've, I've, this is how I've framed it before. Um, I'm pro family preservation. Um, I'm opposed to adoption as it currently is practiced. But that's not to say that I'm anti-adoption. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. Because I think that the way adoption is currently practiced is really a problem. And I think that it ends up doing oftentimes a lot of harm as kind of collateral damage to the good that it can do. And so the to me, I'm much more in favor of a guardianship model. I think there are absolutely kids who need people to take care of them that aren't their family of origin. But I don't believe that children's entire identities and history should be erased in order to do that. So I'm opposed to closed records. I'm opposed to any kind of secrecy, um, redacting birth parents' names, those sorts of things. I would say I'm opposed to um, any kind of legal mechanism that makes it harder for adoptees to know who they are and where they come from. 
But that's not to say that I think that every child is always safest and in the best place with their family of origin, because sometimes that's just not the case. And oftentimes I understand why, and usually it's intergenerational trauma. But for whatever reason, instead of enacting more trauma on the adoptee by then removing them completely and putting them in another family, I'd say we need to work on helping them break that cycle and still learn how to engage with that family in the healthiest way they can. Um, And if other families can help them do that, you know, so I get this question all the time, like, oh, I'm an adoptive parent and my kid, um, you know, I I don't want them to have an open relationship with their birth parents because their birth parents are abusive or neglectful. And I absolutely understand that they want their kids to be safe. And I also know that those kids are going to become adults and might look for their families. Mm-hmm. Actually, they might do it before they become adults, likely on social media when they're teenagers. And so if we're not helping them practice good boundary setting and also knowing what healthy relationships look like and talking about it in the context of their multiple families, then they're going to go out and maybe have the potential to to have more difficult relationships with their birth families when they do go out to find them. So, I mean, I just really believe that we should be more open and we should give kids more skills on how to navigate these relationships, not not just, um, and, and I, I get we want to protect them, but in the end, it doesn't protect. It, it makes them more vulnerable in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for, for answering that. Uh, cause I don't know, like that feels that's, that's hard territory for me to have, uh, any type of intelligent discussion on not least because I've done basically no research into it. <laughs> uh, so it's all personal experience and anecdotal, but, uh, yeah, so I appreciate that. Um, kind of wrapping up, uh, what are you most excited to be thinking about as it relates to uh, your research or just something fun? I don't know. What are you like, it's in your brain space and you're like, oh man, I love thinking about this. I don't know. Um, God, I I love thinking about all of it. So I don't know if I can say anything in particular, but um, in terms of the research, I guess what I'll say is um, my goal really as a researcher, like if I say, if there's one thing that at the end of it all, people will say is, I really want to elevate the voices of the adoptees themselves. And I feel like the research is just, it's really burgeoning. And so I just hope that I can continue to be a good steward of adoptees' voices. And um, I feel like my job isn't to, you know, like create some fantastic body of research as much as do what I can to with my skills to kind of leverage the voices that all of you are already doing in your different ways, right? So podcasts and people writing their own stories and narratives and memoirs and research is one of the different ways that adoptive voices get elevated, but it's not the only way. And I don't think it's necessarily like should be held up to a higher standard as everything else. I think all ways are equally good. So as an adoptee, um, I can say, that you have definitely been doing that. It's on my journey. When I got started, Jerry put me in touch with Sarah Park Dolan as somebody to reach out yeah. to. And she said, you That's need okay. to check yeah. out Harlow's monkey uh, <laughs> and learn from there. And seriously, it seems like every week there's a, a million resources or things that you've shared or are sharing or amplifying that I'm like, 
how am I supposed to get all of this stuff in? How am I supposed to get all of this <laughs> stuff? But uh, seriously, it is a it's a huge boon for me. Um, and, and personally, just on this journey, especially as I dive into the more historical side of it, uh, really digging into, you know, the history of adoption and those first adoptees, you know, the, those things that you provide are extremely valuable um, to me. So thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I love reading books that kind of help me understand. Um, I mean, I would say going into social work and it was it was just an ex- it, in some ways it's a good excuse for me to do all the reading. So yeah. <laughs> like adopted you know, Alita Kim's book is like, oh, I bow down to it. Same. It's amazing. Um, yeah, but there's so many. And um, I I, what I, I try to do at home, Patrick, just back. What I try to do the you know, I feel like I'm, my blog. What I'm trying to do is just help other people have access to the same great education that I had. Um, that helped me understand. I, I again, like I feel like my my great great goal in life is to help me understand how a kid from Korea could end up in a white Scandinavian Minnesota family because it doesn't just happen. There's all these things that had to happen for that to happen. And I want to try and understand all those, what systems, what cultural attitudes, what politics, like what all happened for that, for that to exist. How can I be where I am right now? Um, And I, I feel like, that's kind of a, my lifelong journey is just trying to figure out better what that connection is and how that happened. And you're probably helping a lot of people on the way though, with that blog and those, that journey of your yourself. I mean, it's, uh, the, the blog is great, which again, you mentioned it briefly, Harlow's monkey. Uh, you know, you said it's been around since like 2006, 2006. So? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's been around for, for a long time. Um, explain too briefly, what is Harlow? What is, what is the origin of the Harlow's monkey? Yeah. So um, I was in my social work program and I was talking to my husband about Harlow's monkey and saying, this is like what it's like to be adopted. So Harry Harlow was a psychologist and he did these experiments because he was trying to understand the nature of love and attachment. And so you can't, you know, like in an experiment, a scientific experiment, you don't remove babies to do this. But he (laughs) used baby monkeys because they're they're most like... uh, you know, how humans interact. And so he had these fake monkeys that were made out of wire. And one of them had a bottle and had food. And the other one had a terry cloth covering. And the monkeys, the baby monkeys, uh, when they got scared or frightened, were more likely to go to the soft terry cloth monkeys than to the ones that just gave the food. And, you know, kind of the whole theory, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that you have to have your basic needs met first before you can start to um, move to the level for love and affection. And I think that Harlow's Monkey actually proved the opposite, that it's not just about providing food and shelter, that it's actually about providing love and nourishment. And so I just saw the kind of the whole separation of baby monkeys and putting them with these other monkeys as substitutes. I just felt like it was so adoption right foster mm-hmm. care and adoption and so as i was thinking about starting my blog my husband said well maybe you should name it harlow's monkey <laughs> and it just was such a perfect fit and That's for great. probably two or three years i blogged anonymously under that name harlow's monkey oh. so i didn't even kind of say who i was um for for a while um 
and I would just put it out there in the world and see where it went. And yeah, here we are. Now. You're sharing it's- a lot of great content on there from, from the stuff I saw. So yeah, thank you for that. I am very excited to dig into that. So um, you have been an absolutely wonderful guest. I could talk to you for hours. Um, oh, thank you. And hope that I get the opportunity to talk to you for hours, maybe at a conference or something. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I don't know. I'll try not to like corner you at a party, <laughs> but uh, you know, I hope that we what conference continue are our relationship. Yeah. Why are you cornering people at parties? Uh, anyways. So um, I, you, guys should, you guys should totally submit um, – to do a presentation at con we did at the con oh, conference we, <laughs> we did oh, yeah. so okay hopefully, con if you were listening fingers crossed you know you just yes. landed awesome. on a good one. Is listening yes thank um, you <laughs> where can people see you read more about you or your works or whatever where can they find you on the internet um so harlow's monkey is my blog and i'm on facebook also harlow's monkey and then i'm also on instagram and i'm on twitter under Jaron, which is my name, but I I really never use it. So <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> it's okay. Perfect. We don't really okay. promote Twitter anyway. No. <laughs> it's a it's a thing that we have. None of us really know how to use it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. too much work. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we will be diving into another one of Jerry's mystery box items. Um. So break time. Here we go. What food are we eating today? Roll break. Welcome back to the John Chi Show. You know what time it is. It's food time. Um, yeah. Food time. We are here with our terrific guest, J.R. Kim, and she is going to be joining us for, well, what are we eating today? Um, <laughs> someone. Show. Oh, what do we got there? Neoguri. Seriously, okay, what is this? So, probably totally butchering <laughs> we it. Have, Seriously, what is this? We say? have ramen. Here's the deal. We have ramen. I definitely read it the same way that Nathan just did. I, like, I opened up the package Neoguri. and was like, Neoguri. Okay. And then I saw the Korean up in the top right. It's Noguri. Noguri. Because um, E-O yeah. is Which like that feels, hard O, like that low. Yeah. Well, it's like oh, that soft yo. O. Okay. It's yo. somewhere between ah and o it's like i say you make an o shout an o shape with your lips but make an ah sound with your mouth no. this is why i can't learn yeah. the language no goody i can't no do it those two that's pretty good things. that's the only one that i no would not goody. have known oh yeah that's the only one it means so. raccoon great it means oh. raccoon great Time out. it's a raccoon there's Our raccoon producer. in this wow Oh, wow. that's, okay, so here's the deal. I read the ingredients. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't, <laughs> say that. it doesn't say that. It does say anchovy extract, ginger. Uh, so this is a spicy seafood flavor by Nongshim. Yeah. Um, Tuna extract. This is the first time that we've ever had to cook for the show, so yep. that's exciting, uh, even though it is just ramen. And uh, it's the first time that's it's somewhat spicy no, of an item. So Oh, wait, yeah. what about the kimchi? Didn't you do kimchi? We all had kind of mild versions of it, I think. So. Oh, it was like a medium like spice. It, yeah, it yeah, it's spicy, but not like crazy spicy. So, I think this yeah. is a this is a good warm up though, because I still want us to do that uh, spicy chicken one. So, Ooh, yeah, hot, yeah, that hot chicken. Oh, that volcanic ramen. chicken. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we need to do that. I am not ready for this. So, okay, wait. <laughs> question: Because we've never done the spicy food because yeah. we don't cook on the show or haven't yet. Um, do y'all's nose get sweaty when you cook or when you eat spicy food? Is that just my me? whole face gets sweaty and the rest of my body? It, it depends like it. on how spicy. Like my forehead sometimes sweats a little if it's really spicy. Okay. Um, Just my nose if, runs. Oh, yeah, yeah that too. Yeah, 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 nose yeah. Runs. I feel like it's a pretty classic. Yeah. yeah. 
The worst one is know. if one time in Thailand I had something so spicy it actually gave me the hiccups. Oh, oh that was terrible. That, and that one was really that that's spicy. I mean, if you it, it was because I thought it was a green bean and it turned out to be like like some a sort of like a ghost pepper or Thai like chili serrano or something. It was Amazing. it literally almost made me die and mm-hmm. I got the hiccups afterwards. So that interesting is for me the the height of spiciness is if i get hiccups all right you guys dig into this i'm gonna disappear for one second i'll be right back keep going keep going wow okay well anyways so we have yes the noodle soup it uh you you cook it just the normal way you would cook any of these packaged uh um ramens you put water in it for three and a half minutes or four minutes I have and never made ramen this way. Really? Yeah. yeah I mean, I've, I know that's the that's the college way. I've so. only done stovetop ramen. Yeah, it, it's 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 the quick way if you don't have like a boiling pot, mm-hmm. and then you just stir it, and yeah. everything mixes. The noodles hopefully are cooked, and you hopefully don't. Jr. Have them you out. had this before? Not this brand. I usually get the shin ramen. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was go. gonna say. That's shin the one ramen. that I get. Yeah. That's yeah. The, I think that's the, the classic one. one. Yeah. Um, so it's been floating around in our Facebook group. Yep. Because uh, someone mentioned it and then I posted about it and stuff. So Shin yeah. Ramyun yeah. is the thing. Yeah. The very popular. I mean, you can get is cases that of that at Costco. Too? So, oh, yeah, yeah. this is Nongshim. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And that one gotcha. too. All right. So, All right, so the reason I just sprint away is because I grabbed a fork to eat this with. And, and then you realized, realized the fork. again <laughs> that I'd made a again. huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so. Bone? But you rectified that, uh, no? Yes, I got the metal what kind of, too. What kind of chopsticks do you? Yeah, okay, are they metal. flat or are they round? Round. round. Okay. I have those metal ones though too. Are those the ones I gave you? No, <laughs> I have those though in my thing. I got like twelve okay. chopsticks yeah, is. too. Okay, these came from my time in Korea, um, mm-hmm. so I'm very sentimental about them. Oh, I'm out of breath. <clears throat> Ooh. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, it's so hot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not bad. That's tasty. I mean, like temperature-wise. Also, yeah, it's temperature it spicy. Hot. It's a little spicy. I wouldn't say it's like. That's a good spice. I me. like that. I mean, it's a good flavor. Here's okay. The other thing is, I did not know that I had signed up to uh, do dinner because, for me, as the time of recording, it's about to be dinner time. You're gonna eat so that while whole Patrick thing. is over here, yeah, Patrick is over here doing intermittent fasting and fasting, and I'm over here eating two dinners like a hobbit. So there you go. That's what about second breakfast. <laughs> what about second dinner? Hmm. So yeah, um, he knows. You know, and it's weird to me when they call this seafood flavor because I don't really taste seafood. There's no seafood it, in this. Yeah, smells like seafood yeah. though. Yeah, I think it's the aroma. Like the, the aroma. It smells like noodles. The, the packet, no, no, no. The the seasoning, like the broth, the soup base, that yeah. smelled very seafoody to me, huh. compared to the other one, which I mean, did not smell. If very you look through the ingredients, I mean, the first seafoody thing mentioned is anchovy Ooh. extract. That's hot, and then a little cuttlefish <laughs> extract, and that's about it. Did you cuttlefish with king whale crackers? Is yeah. that what that was? Uh-huh. Yeah, seems to be the popular one. Which I'm all right, tuna, but so know, thumbs like up, thumbs I up, like yeah. It. Um, yeah, okay, so we do ratings out of five. Um, any relevant, uh, it's whatever, five somethings out of whatever something. You stopped you calling pick. them out yeah. at the jump, and now people have just been making their own up for like the last three episodes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, ratings. yeah. So, well, ratings. yeah. So I'm gonna, oh, this is, this is made in USA. Jerry? Come on. I mean, I guess that's okay. I don't know. I don't, maybe it's, Jeremy? Yeah. Maybe Nongshim has a factory. It's just manufactured and distributed. So through Nongshim <laughs> America. So 
I mean, oh, I assume yeah, they okay. have to do Classic that Jeremy move. The FDA. Classic <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> he's, not, he's not here. Call he's back. Not here. Yeah, All right. Uh, so how many Neos do you give this glory? Uh, let's start with Patrick. Wouldn't it be more no, no, or not instead yeah, of Neo? Yeah, but because I, my initial reaction was to mispronounce it Neo. So Me too. I was thinking Matrix when I saw that. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. It's totally like so, Neo. Anyways, oh, I like Patrick, it a, I like it a lot. I'm going to go with a four out of five. Neos. Neos. Um, Maybe that's Neo. There's a little dynamite. Just the literal temperature of the food is making it hard for me to speak. And I'm also sweating now. <laughs> I'm also sweating now. Um, I would have gave it a... I don't know what's keeping it from a five. I think there's just one thing missing. But one of the good things, I, or one of the reasons I'm giving it a four... I like this microwave symbol right here that says, this is how long you microwave for. It's got the instructions on the other side, but just in case you don't want to read all that, boom. I you know, shout out Nonsense for that. picture is worth a thousand words, and that picture does not waste any I of I appreciate thousand. that. So four, four Neos out of five. Oh, I'm sweating. Well, it seems that I took a, a terrible time to take a bite. So. <laughs> Slurping <laughs> over here. <laughs> oh yeah, JR's digging into it. You sipping it down. Just do you drinking like, the broth? Do you like yeah. spicy food typically? It, I do, and it's all about the broth for me. I get that. Mm. That's true. Yeah. I will say, yeah, this broth base is really, really it's, solid. Yeah, it's, I like it. it's, it's yeah. pretty pretty solid. Have you had um, Mike's ramen? Mike's ramen? Mike's mighty ramen. They have a know. really, really good yeah. broth. It's not Asian, sorry, it's not Korean, but um, they have a really good broth, that, very thick. Doesn't the orange um, packages? Is that Mike's? Yeah, there's multiple oh. flavors, but yeah. Um, but yeah, those are really good if you want a really good broth. This is I do right. think this is a good broth. It's hard to, for me to see into it. Um, <laughs> Can you yeah. see into broth? Well, I guess I'd have to take... I. Oh, yeah, Patrick, I'm surprised you like uh, ramen. Well, wait, actually, how do you feel about broth? Are you like no on the broth because you don't like murky water? Oh, no. Any, any type of <laughs> murky water, <laughs> that's more milk specific. <laughs> When I look at a liquid and it's got a milk base to it, that's what makes the murk. Um, no, I like this is a good broth. I think it's got a really good taste. It's got a good flavor balance, right. I think, between spice and not so spice. And then, yeah, it's just good. Solid. Broth I could drink. Like I'll say that. All right. I'm going to give this, um, you know what? I'm going to say, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five raccoons. And here's the deal. <laughs> when I make ramen, I like the stovetop ramen because then I can add an egg, I yeah, can add sure. garlic or seaweed or whatever. But when it's in a cup, I don't have all that fun flavorability, you know? So uh, that's the only thing holding it back. Otherwise, I'd give it a perfect 5 out of 5. In fact, if I had the stovetop version, it would be a 5 out of 5. My nose, I don't know if you can see this on my B-cam. My nose is properly sweaty, so it's a great level of spice. Uh, I am wearing like a thousand layers because it's very cold here today, so I'm a little hot. Um, but yeah, the the nose sweat is uh, the sweatometer is a good spice indicator. So four and a half out of five raccoons. Sweatometer, I like that. Snow goodie. So as far as the spice meter for you on a scale from say zero to ten, what level of spice is this for you? Where you wouldn't would you like to go higher, lower? Okay, so what is like what give me what ten is for you? Is ten like it would destroy me or ten is perfect? Ten is like you're in pain. Like the last okay. sauce so on the Ten hot is ones. I'm in pain. The last one. Yeah, yeah. You don't <laughs> okay. you don't ever want to do another ten. So that means what five is just right? Yeah. I'd say five is just okay, right. Okay, great. So I'm gonna <laughs> say this is 
I'm going to say this is a five. I think this okay. is really good. I think I could get to the broth, um, but that might actually put it over for me because uh, living in the Midwest, I just don't eat – like they just don't mm-hmm. make spicy food here right. in the Midwest. So my uh, ability to eat spice has maybe decreased in the years that I've lived here. So this sits at a perfect five. Um, JR, your thoughts on – this how many microwaves out of five do you give this uh i think it's pretty decent i'd give it a four four microwaves out of five <laughs> i love that yeah okay i think i think it's not seafoody so mm. i think that's the one thing that's putting it down for me but the noodles are chewy and they're holding up in the broth mm-hmm. and the broth itself is good it's not, i don't think it's too spicy i could go maybe just a little bit more but not a lot more so you could use more seafood you think the seafood would put it over the top? Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's a little false advertising if it says it's seafood flavored and it's point. not. Right. Yeah. That's that's a good point, Nongshim. I, I agree it, with that too. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Nongshim, you listening? You put all the seafood in your chips. Maybe you need. <laughs> oh, oh man. Maybe you need some shrimp chips and crumble those up and put it on top. Then you'd never need to eat sodium for the rest of the year. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, well actually, Nathan, that's just a morning sodium intake for him. Yeah, this is this is only sixty two percent. I mean, this is like an appetizer, right? So. Nathan's the person that literally Nathan. takes the lid off the salt shaker and just dumps it out. It's not a prank. It's it's what he does. <laughs> just kidding. You know, deers deers have salt licks, and so do I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. That's good. I, How many no goodies do you give this round? I give this. I agree. I give it four uh, microwaved raccoons uh, as well. Well navigated. Microwave raccoon. <laughs> well navigated. <laughs> Never a part of the rating system. I'm for it. I, I like the spice level. I think for me, same thing. I could use a little more spice. I could go one high, one notch higher for perfect. Um, seafood too. It needs a little tad extra flavor mm-hmm. of something. Maybe some add some fish sauce or something. Make it a little pungent, a little more. Uh, or a little umami. little. Little fish cakes, little yeah. dried up fish cakes or something in there. Something yeah. in there. Uh, I, I like you said. I agree with everyone. Okay, Patrick is dying. Patrick, on you there. okay? Did you, you try to the drink the broth? Fire. Heat. Go fire. Oh. <laughs> so Patrick will. It should, it should have come with a little side water for you. Ooh, yeah. Did you hold your chaser? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, uh, and I do want it to be a little more. Uh, yeah, like involved. So I would take this out normally and add it to like an egg or some vegetables yeah. and things like yeah. that normally. So yeah. no, I, I feel like what, the way I'm eating it right now is what I would do in college. Yeah. And so. Okay. So that actually reminds me, um, JR is the only person that actually bought this. How does this price point compare to the classic college Maruchan price point? Do you it's know? more expensive. Yeah. It's okay. like, well, I don't know. It's been a while since I bought the regular. It's been a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I mean,. I I haven't been in college in quite some time. So. But you're also like a a perennial academic, right? As we found in your um, That is your true. That is true. So I just keep going to school college. forever and ever. <laughs> 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 I but I could ask my kid my 22-year-old <laughs> would would tell me. Well, we had such a fantastic time uh, talking with JR about um, her adoption story, uh, her perennial academia, um, and everything in between. So uh, listen to that on our podcast, The John G Show. That episode drops on Wednesday. 
um, or it's already dropped, depending on when you're watching slash listening to this. <laughs> and Patrick, <gasps> when you're done chugging your water. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, this broth Patrick, is good, milk. though, actually, though. I know. You can, I, 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 you can find me. <clears throat> oh, my throat is on he fire. He also had allergies earlier, to be fair. <laughs> so this is probably helping to clear those allergies, I think. Oh, you can find me on Patrick in the world or at Patrick in the world on Instagram. Um, I'm on Facebook and my brain has just melted to much. <laughs> Patrick on fire. Oh my goodness. Somebody send Patrick Sorry, some banana Passing milk. it off. You find me at uh, No Walk Photo. <laughs> and you can find me at KJ Relke on all the places. Uh, please get in touch with the show at John Chi Show on all platforms or send us an email. Uh, John Chi Show at justlikemedia.com. Shouts out to Zach for being our very first emailer. Um, we super appreciate it, dude. We're excited to read more emails from you. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, I think that is it. You okay? Yeah. We're excited to read more emails from you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Great. Uh, that's it, yeah, right? that's it. That's good. Thank all you right. all for uh, for listening and watching. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for coming. We'll see you uh, next time on the John Chi Show. Until then, John Chi, John Chi, hey yo. Cut clip.